Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. Today is Tuesday, November 22nd, our Thanksgiving Eve Eve. My name is Tom Giovanetti. I'm the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. And we're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. Today, we're going to do a special podcast episode on the current threats of a railroad strike. Uh, We are just coming out of the disruptions in the supply chain that were caused by COVID and the response to COVID and the after effects. Uh, We're in an economy that is still stressed by inflation and by remaining supply chain issues. And now we're facing the double whammy of a possible railroad strike. Uh, This could have very serious repercussions for the economy. And so we wanted to do a special episode of our podcast on it, on that topic. So our participants today will be, as usual, IPI's resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews, but then also Daniel Ogden. Daniel is a lecturer on global trade and supply chain at Baylor University. And Jerry Glass. Jerry is the chairman of FNH Solutions Group. They're a management labor relations consultant and uh, very knowledgeable and very involved in the current details of the labor dispute and other related issues regarding freight rail. So we're really delighted to have uh, all of you with us today for this podcast. So, Daniel, I thought we would turn to you first. Um, this has been a year when there's been a lot of discussion about infrastructure. Uh, there was an enormous infrastructure spending package that was pushed through by the Biden administration with the cooperation of a handful of Republicans. Um, in all of that conversation, there was a whole lot of things that were being funded and a whole lot of things that were being described as infrastructure that, are, that to my ear at least, were not what we traditionally think of infrastructure. Uh, in fact, there were things funded in that package that I don't think have anything to do with infrastructure. Uh, but when you think about critical infrastructure— you know, somewhere in the top five has got to be our rail network, especially our freight rail network. Oh, my understanding is that almost everything that touches consumers, from consumer goods to agricultural products to even the chlorine that we use to purify our drinking water, all travels over rail. So could you describe for us a little bit the uh, the importance of freight rail in our supply chain? Thanks, Tom, and thanks for having me on this uh, podcast. By the way, uh, chlorine uh, has gone up dramatically in price. Uh, as someone who has a swimming pool, it is amazing how this all is. I'm just curious about the effects you mentioned chlorine. But anyway, I want to address this from a uh, global perspective, and I use that term global both in a pun intended, by the way, both in its sense of, of a large overview as well as the international aspect. So from the overview Um, One of the things we need to remember is that uh, transportation by train, freight trains are obviously a very important part of our entire transportation system, but only one part. And and for ideally for supply chain to work properly, you need to have all the different parts of a transportation system function efficiently. So, you know, we have things like trucks, we have trains, we have planes. Uh, aircraft, and then we have vessels. And um, one of the challenges we're facing right now, not only, of course, related to uh, just the effects that a strike would have on on a drill freight, but also right now uh, we have a trucking industry where uh, diesel fuel is uh, 
very much in shortage and prices are therefore going up as well as we've got a truck industry where there are uh, shortages of drivers. And so what happens, what should happen ideally is if you do have a slowdown in one component of the, uh, of the transportation industry, maybe another component can pick it up. But if we have a rail strike uh, and therefore a freight mo being moved by rail comes to a halt, the trucking industry is not going to be there available to, to pick up the slack because of a shortage of drivers and as well as the increased supply of fuel. I was just reading uh, an article, I think, in the Wall Street Journal yesterday about how some of the truck drivers are, are fortunately, they said if they're, if they're not getting additional uh, compensation from their, their firm, they wouldn't be able to drive. And of course, those prices get passed down through the economy. So it's not like we have another sector of the economy or sector of the transportation industry that can easily pick up the slack. And so that's kind of from the uh, the overview situation. And then we, we look at the nature of the supply chain in general. It is a global supply chain. And we all saw during the uh, COVID how we had all these uh, you, these pictures of all these vessels offshore, off of the LA Long Beach ports, all, you know, just scores of vessels. And so, so much of our freight, of course, we have today, particularly consumer goods, comes from China. And these goods are all moved in containers. Containerization is one of the things that's revolutionized international trade in the last uh, 40 years or so. And of course, with the multimodal nature of the uh, transportation industry, these containers will come into port. They'll either be offloaded onto rail or offloaded on the trucks. And so obviously rail plays a huge part in uh, shipping of these containers to different destination points. And then of course, we also have moving by rail of commodities such as oil and coal. And so we, we obviously have a situation in the country in my view, because of the infatuation of the Biden administration with so-called green energy, where we're going to have shortages of 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 for heating for the winter, electricity, uh, fuel oil, et cetera. And uh, so if we uh, and of course, the administration is totally against uh, building any pipelines. And so if we have a rail strike, uh, you know, a lot of oil is not going to be moved throughout the country and a lot of coal won't be as well. And so and so this is a really critical time right now as we get, we've already entered into the cold season. Uh, in spite of global warming predictions, we actually have a very cold uh, late fall so far, perhaps winter. We've had record snowfalls. And so we have energy needs that rely upon uh, rail transportation, which also aren't going to be met. So when we think about, therefore, the entire industry what the role that rail plays in transportation industry as a whole, as well as the international aspects, we really are facing a critical situation right now in terms of the overall transportation system and our international supply chain. I'm really glad you brought up the intermodal aspect because it's not it's not like trucking and rail are simply alternatives to each other, but they're integrated. I mean, if, if you get the next time you get stopped at a railroad crossing and have to wait for a train to go by, odds are it's going to be mostly containers, you know, that will eventually be offloaded onto a truck and delivered to a final destination. And it really is a chain. And, you know, the expression a chain is only as great as it's only strong as its weakest link. If one of those links go down, you know, it's not like the internet to where if a server goes down, you can route around it, right? If 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 the if the you know exactly. physical supply chain, if one link goes down, 
it, it, it can bottleneck everything. I was talking to somebody earlier today, and I just casually said something like uh, the supply chain issues that were caused by COVID. And uh, this, 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 uh, this economist corrected me, and he said, I don't think the supply chain problems were caused by COVID. He said, I think they were revealed by COVID. He said, he said, we already had weaknesses in our supply chain. And he talked about how our ports are nowhere near as efficient as other ports around the world, uh, beset by uh, union restrictions on labor and times that they can be operating and all these sorts of things. Do you, do you share that perspective that it's not like we had a robust, resilient supply chain that got disrupted by a pandemic, but actually we had a supply chain that, that had weaknesses and vulnerabilities in it already that were simply exposed. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. COVID revealed the supply chain issues, not revealed it, revealed it in many respects. First of all, in regards to pharmaceuticals, powders, revealed how dependent, for example, we were upon China for our pharmaceutical industry, but also revealed it in a technical sense of the infrastructure. And it certainly exacerbated the problem, but COVID did not cause our supply chain problems. Another issue that presently is before us, and there was just an article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of days ago about West Coast ports and about how, because of labor issues out there, a lot of ocean freight traffic's being diverted to either Gulf ports, such as Houston, New Orleans, or Jacksonville, these coasts. Now, if you have goods coming from Europe, then they're logically going to go to those ports. But if you've got ships from Asia, they're having to go through the Panama Canal and get around to the either the Gulf of Mexico or Atlantic Ocean ports. That also is creating additional delays, additional costs. And so that's and that's the key thing to understand here. I mean, yes, within the rail industry itself, we see things that are very important, specifically to rail industry. But we really need to look at the transportation system as part of an overall system where all these different components need to work together in an efficient manner to result in efficient delivery of goods. And you're right. It's not that train and, and, and rail are necessarily, uh, in certain respects, yes, they are competitors, but they're also complementary. And But the point is, if the rail goes down, then the alternative, well, we'll just ship it by truck. Well, guess what? That's going to result in certainly higher costs, greater delays because of shortage of truck drivers, higher fuel costs. And so the end result is going to be increased inflation. We've already got inflation. Uh, we're going to see increased inflation, increased prices, and, and longer delivery times. And I think that all, of course, has a ripple effect throughout the economy. Uh, as Again, as this article I was reading about the truck driver, about the fuel prices, it goes up, well, you know, I raise my price and then goes to the distributor, he raises his price, the retailer raises his price and then comes back to me. I end up having to pay more myself. And that's that's just the way uh, rising prices go. So that's why this, if we look at the whole rail strike situation and not just look solely at the effects on the road industry itself, but look at the entire transportation system, which is a critical infrastructure piece. We often think of infrastructure as you know, the, in terms of the ports, the, you know, how efficiently a port operates, airport, et cetera, maybe in a seaport, how, how deep, uh, you know, whether it can take large container vessels. But we also need to look at infrastructure from a systemic standpoint about how these different components work together. And if one of them fails, it puts strain upon the rest of the system. 
And if the rest of the system isn't able to handle that strain, then you have problems. Uh, Daniel, I want to um, sort of underscore the point you made about trucker shortages. I listen to Sirius XM radio, satellite radio in my car, and it seems like this year, two out of every three commercials is for truck drivers. So, I mean, you can just tell clearly that, that, that you know, there's a severe shortage of truck drivers. And I think it's kind of ironic because uh, a year or two ago, they were all talking about how all the truck drivers were going to get laid off because of self-driving trucks. And now all of a sudden we find out that, no, in <laughs> fact, you know, we could use probably twice as many truck drivers as we have right now. Yeah, that's, that is kind of ironic. I, I think we're a long ways from self-driving trucks. We see this commercials for them, but... I think a lot of that's pie in the sky, and and again, it just it just it just goes to illustrate how this is an integrated transportation system we have, and so obviously, again, in regards to specifically railroad issues, these are important, but they're also important because we have it's part of a larger system, a global system, both in a uh, in an international sense as well as an overall sense. Yeah, thank you, thank you, Daniel. Uh, Jerry, we're really delighted to have you with us. Uh, tell us a little bit about your career working in, in this area of labor and management relations and rail and infrastructure. So um, there are two labor laws in the United States. Uh, all industries except airlines and railroads are covered under the National Labor Relations Act. Airlines and railroads are covered under the Railway Labor Act. And that's an area of expertise and specialization for me. Um, I've bargained uh, well over 300 contracts myself in the airline industry, railroad industry, and some other industries as well. Um, but the RLA is somewhat unique in how it's administered and, uh, and the meaning of it. So it's a little complex because, for example, in the, in the railroad and airline industries, contracts never expire. They become amendable. And that enables the parties to continue to negotiate for sometimes years on end with the status quo in place when changes cannot be made, the union cannot strike, and management cannot implement uh, an offer until you get through this process, which we're, uh, we're almost through with on the railroad side. So that's my area of expertise. Uh, I've bargained in the rail industry. I know it well. Um, but, you know, you also have to understand collective bargaining. You have to understand that collective bargaining is a process of give and take. So, for example, and this is this is a fact that's not very well known. The issue that the unions are complaining about is lack of paid sick days, paid time off. About 50 years ago, they had paid sick leave starting on day one, and traded away paid sick days for longer periods of time to get sickness benefits. They went from 26 weeks to 52 weeks. And so now, after giving it away and trading it for something, they come back and say, well, on top of the 24% pay increase we're getting, on top of the $5,000 bonus we're getting, um, we also want to get sick leave back. And that's just not the way collective bargaining works. If you want to get something, you have to give up something in return. That that adage is true for management as well as labor. So um, 
it's not as easy to just say, well, give them another, you know, few days of sick day, sick time, and this will be all over. Besides the cost of it, um, there is the process of collective bargaining and understanding how that works. The other thing I might mention is that for freight rail management to go back in at the 11th hour and say, well, we'll go sweeten this deal now in order to, to avoid a strike or work stoppage, um, sends the wrong message. And the message is this, when you make a deal, you stand behind that deal. And if you start rejecting the deal, expecting and getting further improvements, there's no incentive for unions to ever ratify an agreement. They'll just keep coming back over and over again to get more and more. So this is an important element of the collective bargaining process that people need to understand. So, Jerry, I, what you're bringing up is an important point. And I was a little surprised to find that it's what? There's something like 12 unions involved in the negotiations. And as I understand, if any of them decide to reject it, all of them have to reject it. And that strikes me as a very odd situation. And going to your point about how you might be able to sort of manipulate the process, it strikes me that one union could say, well, we will re reject this right now, but we'll know coming back that we'll try to push for something else and try to get these extra benefits. But then the another union there could say, well, we, we don't accept that and we're going to hold off and then we want more benefits. So talk a little bit about the, the issue of several unions having to be able to agree with this in order to be able to get a contract. So what has happened is that eight unions have ratified the agreement already. Four have rejected. But under the Railway Labor Act and under case law, if one union, one out of the 12, rejects and sets up a picket line, then all the other unions, even though they've accepted their agreements, will honor the picket line of the one union that failed ratification, and that shuts down the entire freight rail system. And that's legal under the law. So if if some if one of the unions rejects and the others then have to go on the um, on the picket line, they still agreed. Eight of them, you said, have already agreed to the agreement. But if the one or two unions that say we don't agree, and I think there's what three or four now that have not accepted it, if they're saying we want to have X and Y and Z added into the agreement, do the other eight have to come back in and vote on it again? Uh, no, their their agreements are ratified now. How the, the, the caveat here is that if the striking union gets additional benefits, additional gains, it is possible and maybe likely that the other unions that ratified said, hold on a minute. You gave this striking union more. I want more now. And it creates this ripple effect that um, upsets the whole balance of labor relations and collective bargaining industry. So it, it, again, you know, what you do for one, you may have to end up doing for others, especially if they have what's called a Me Too clause. And, and my question for you is, is that situation common where you have multiple unions that can, that are part of a contract and if any one of them uh, uh, decide to not go along, it sort of kills it for everybody? 
it it so it is not common and this only occurs in multi-employer bargaining where you have uh, one management representative bargaining with multiple unions and so there are only a few industries in the country where that takes place as an example trucking um and of course uh, freight rail um i i've bargained in the elevator construction industry as well but it this is very unusual and very uncommon as to what's taking place here so if President Biden decides to step in because he likely does not want a strike going on, creating more problems for the economy, um, does what can he do? We should probably president point, we should probably point out that President Biden has already stepped in, right? Because right. the Biden administration essentially essentially my understanding is they brokered the agreement. Is that correct? That, that's correct. In fact, under the law, the president can step in and create what's called the Presidential Emergency Board that issues non-binding recommendations. At this point in time, the president can't do anything legally. He can, of, co- of course, try and pressure the parties to settle, but legally there's nothing else he can do. This is now in the hands of Congress. They're the only ones that can intervene and stop a potential strike. Well, I'll, I'll just make an observation. Le- legality doesn't seem to have stopped the Biden administration from doing various things, but that's another issue. Okay. Uh, so my understanding is that um, there is legislation right now that is e- either being held in the wings or is being worked on uh, that could be passed like in a lame duck session that would address this. Is that correct? That's correct. There was legislation proposed back in September, I believe, um, by uh, Senator Burr and Weicker, I believe, and and uh, and Senator Sanders uh, objected. Now, if that were to happen again, there would be a vote in the Senate, and six if sixty senators vote to move ahead, the objection is is no longer valid and in place. Um, but you know. Senator Durbin has said, don't assume that Congress is going to just step in and settle this quickly because of the intense partisanship that exists in Congress. That said, um, nobody wants to see their oil, their grain, their wheat, other commodities interrupted, uh, which could have an effect almost immediately. When you think about it, for example, Chicken, poultry, they rely on their feed from from freight railroads. And if they don't get their feed for the chickens and livestock, uh, within a matter of days, we could have a major crisis on our hands. So I I don't think the general public understands how much much the freight railroads actually uh, handle and the variety of things that they handle it would have a far-reaching effect on the economy and it would have it almost immediately. So we've got a major crisis on our hands that needs to be resolved one way or the other. And let, let me say that Congress has a number of options. They could legislate a settlement. settlement. They could extend the cooling off period to give the parties more time to negotiate and try to settle. 
So there are some things they could do to intervene. Um, I'm not at the bargaining table, so I can't speak for the freight railroad industry. But again, if you look at collective bargaining, I would be surprised if the freight railroads um, would sweeten the offer at this point. You know, going back to what Dan was talking about earlier with coal and all the news articles talked about coal not being able to be uh, distributed. It's it's again this irony here where you have the president who wants to push green energy, but is constantly asking for oil companies to produce more, natural gas companies to produce more, and might be pushing something just so he can get more coal distributed to the country uh, to pre- prevent sort of a, the freeze out that might happen. I'm, th- there's an irony in this. Jerry, I think you're right that the, that the general public does not appreciate the significance and the importance of the rail backbone of the supply chain, an extended rail strike. Now, whether or not that's likely or not is a separate matter, but an extended rail strike really could have impact on people's ability to heat their homes this winter. Uh, You you could literally be finding a situation where water treatment centers do not have the chemicals they need to, to purify the public water supply. I mean, this could get ugly very fast. And I suspect that's part of why there's separate body of law that governs <laughs> that governs rail because of the fact that it is so crucial. Well, one of the major tenets of the Railway Labor Act is to prevent the interruption of interstate commerce. And you've hit on exactly why. Frankly, a strike of any kind of duration would be catastrophic for the American economy. And uh, I regardless of the partisanship, the pressure will be so great on Congress to end this strike that I I don't see any other alternative if the parties can't reach a voluntary agreement that they don't step in and end this fairly quickly. You know, um, when you when you and Dr. Matthews were going through this issue about, you know, other unions respecting uh, the the decision by one union, it, it strikes me that even apart from that, just practically speaking, it's not like you can run a railroad with conductors but no brakemen or vice versa. So, you know, e- even if even if the unions weren't bound to support each other, you still have to have everybody on board or or you can't run the railroad. The, right. se- the second the second question I have for you, uh, Daniel Ogden was talking earlier about the importance of ports and things like that. Uh, unions have a tendency to support each other. And so is it possible that we could see something like longshoremen's unions and Teamsters and things like that also deciding to go on strike to support the rail unions? Could this cascade or could this domino into something even larger? No, not not really. We've we've had these strikes before and and that would be, you know, considered secondary action. That would not be considered legal and that couldn't happen. Okay. Yeah. Let me ask this question, Jerry. If the unions know that Congress would have a lot of pressure to step in and do something, or the president would, doesn't that imply that there is a a real incentive for them to try to make sure to not let it go that far and make sure they get what they as much as they can get up to the brink and then say, okay, we agree, because you don't want Congress coming in and making changes that might they might not want. Dr. Matthews, you great. You raise a great point. And in fact, what has happened is that 
the since the presidential emergency board report came out, the freight railroads did sweeten the deal somewhat, and that it is possible, perhaps likely, that if Congress steps in, they will just adopt the emergency board report uh, hook, line, and sinker, and the improvements that the parties negotiated won't go into effect, and that is a real risk. The other thing I want to point out is that one of the largest rail rail, rail unions, um, Smart TD, they rejected their agreement in total. There, there are five crafts that vote. Four voted for it, one voted against it. But the amalgamated rejection was 50.78%. That is not a mandate. That tells you that in addition to the eight unions that ratified, this largest union, um, just by a, a, a hair whisker, didn't ratify. And it doesn't call for the kinds of dramatic changes that these unions are still looking for. Um, they did not help themselves in having such a slim rejection. And in fact, four of the five crafts actually accepted the proposal. It only went down because one of the crafts voted against it and they they tabulate all the votes together. So, um, you know, it's another reason why the unions need to be very careful here in what they do. So we're in this situation just by the skin of the teeth, essentially, as far as that vote went. Well, that's it, it, in terms of the largest union, there are still th uh, three other smaller unions that rejected. Um, but the driver here is really smart TD. Yeah. Okay. Let me ask Daniel if he has any final thoughts and then we'll go to Jerry with any final thoughts. Yeah, just two points. Um, uh, Jerry makes a point that other unions, you know, longshoremen, et cetera, they're not going to strike. But of course, you know, that we can have a peer, they, they're, we can have a coincidence of situations. And I think that's a point I was making earlier, even though the threatened labor and rest of the West Coast ports uh, isn't isn't uh, tied to the railroad situation, yet the effect of it will be a cumulative effect. And so that that's it, it's just bad timing, I guess you could say that that's happening. The other thing that um, uh, no one has mentioned yet, but something that that caught my eye in one of the uh, I think it was one of the press releases from the unions, or perhaps it was a story analyzing why the vote went away. We've had this issue of crew size also right now before Congress, or before actually before the administrative agency that regulates railroads. And there's actually quite interesting history with this. Uh, uh, but in any event, um, I happen to think that some of the vote against this, uh, particularly by the the uh, particular shop that uh, Jerry mentioned, I think some of that may actually be almost like a proxy vote to say, well, we're also unhappy that you're looking to reduce the crew size to one person. And therefore, this is kind of our way to saying, hey, we're this is kind of signaling that this is part of a larger issue as well. And I'd be curious to see if, if Jerry thinks that's the case, but it seems to me that in some ways, the rejection was based upon trying to send a signal. We're, we're not happy about this other issue, even though it's not involved in this particular negotiation. Yeah, I think it's fair to say, uh, Dr. Ogden, that, that um, 
rail workers are unhappy with a number of things, um, mostly related to their quality of life, related to safety, and related to the reduction in crew consist. Um, so I think you, you raise a good point there. Uh, let, let me just finish up by saying this. After the unions made an agreement, President Biden held a Rose Garden ceremony, extolling the virtues of this agreement. He hit on the fact that this was the largest uh, pay raise in uh, God knows how long. It capped health care costs and did give, in fact, uh, an additional paid day off to uh, workers in addition to all the time off they have. This is, without question, the best agreement that the freight railroad unions have ever negotiated in their history. And uh, it is just time to put this to an end and make sure this economy keeps moving. Yeah, this is not the right time for yet another major challenge to hit our economy, just as we're trying to recover from the, from the last several blows. Well, I just want to say um, how, how much I appreciate, Jerry, uh, you and uh, Professor Ogden for joining us today on such short notice. Uh, we try to deliver timely policy content to our audience, and this is extremely timely. So we've been talking with Professor Dan Ogden and Jerry Glass about the current labor dispute in the freight rail industry and the threat that that poses to the economy. Professor Daniel Ogden is a lecturer on global supply chain at Baylor University, and Jerry Glass is the chairman of FNH Solutions Group. They're a management labor relations consulting group. Uh, two great experts in this area, and we very much appreciate their being with us. So thanks so much for, for making yourselves available, and thanks for sharing your expertise with our audience. Our pleasure. Thank, thank, thank you, guys. And for our listeners, we'd like to invite you to check out our website at IPI.org, where you can sign up and get notices for upcoming podcast episodes, new content, and also upcoming events. Uh, you can specifically find content on trade and labor and supply chain-related issues. And you can help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. So that's IPI.org, IPI.org. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.